Well, hello and welcome to the e-commerce podcast with me, your host, Matt Edmondson. The e-commerce podcast is all about helping you deliver e-commerce. Wow. And to help us do just that, today we are chatting with Sirish Nadkani about unlocking marketplace success and overcoming modern monopolists. Oh, yes, we are. But before we dive into that conversation, let me uh, just remind you, dear listener, if you haven't done so already, head over to the website, ecommercepodcast.net, sign up to the newsletter, and we will send you the notes and the links from our conversation straight to your inbox. They come through automatically. It's awesome. So sign up for that. And also, let me do a big shout out to the e-commerce cohort who brings you succinctly the e-commerce podcast. Oh yes, e-commerce cohort is our membership group, our private members group, uh, which you can join. Every month we deliver expert workshops. We get usually ex-guests from the podcast actually delivering workshops. They're awesome. Uh, So it just helps you learn and grow in e-commerce. Plus one of the other added benefits, apart from the myriad of others, is you get to watch the live recording of this podcast. So we live record the podcast. You get to watch it. You can come join in. You can answer, ask your questions to our guests, and I'm sure they would love to answer them. So uh, yes, if you haven't done so already, come join us in cohort. It'd be great to see you in there. More information is available at ecommercecohort.com. Membership prices start from just $14.99. So it's not expensive. Come and join us. Now, Oh yes, perfect timing on the music. It's almost like I'm a professional. (laughs) Steady on, Matt. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Now let's meet uh, Sirish Nadkani, a serial entrepreneur with the Midas touch for creating businesses that reach millions. Not only did he co-found Live Mocha, the the language learning giant, uh, and he also laid the groundwork for BlackBerry internet email. We are going back a little bit there, Sirish, I'm not gonna lie. He also shares his wisdom as an author, his books from Startup to Exit and his recent masterpiece, Winner Takes All, case studies in how online marketplaces are creating modern monopolies are must reads in the business world. Sirish, good to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us, man, all the way from Seattle, Washington. How are we doing today? Thank you, Matt. Great to be with you. I'm doing well. Good, man. Good. So <laughs> for those that might not know, and I dare say, actually, there's going to be quite a few that don't know. Um, just explain what BlackBerry Internet Email is, because I know, right, uh, going back a few years, but I, it's that bizarre point of life where there are going to be people listening to the show that actually have no idea what I'm talking about. So just explain that and let's jump into the conversation. Right, right. Yeah. So, um uh, BlackBerry, first of all, was a very popular mobile device that lets you access your email and calendar. It had uh, a unique keyboard on the uh, device, so you're not yeah. typing on a piece of glass. And it was very, very popular uh, in the 2000 timeframe until iPhone came about. Yeah. Now, BlackBerry Internet Email uh, was a technology that uh, my company had developed that BlackBerry acquired, and it um, allowed people to access their existing email accounts. Uh, so we had uh, 
reverse engineered all the proprietary email systems, including oh, wow. AOL, Hotmail, Lotus Notes, etc. And uh, you could access any of these email systems uh, through BlackBerry Internet email. So, I mean, hats off to you, sir, for doing that, because it sounds like, you know, we're so used to this, like the iPhone now, you can scan a QR code and connect to all your accounts and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but this is in the very early noughties, and you're, you're doing something which sounds to me like it was a bit of a technical breakthrough. Uh, it, it never really been done before. Um, so I'm curious, did you just wake up one day and think, oh, I'm just going to crack the board of email because I want email on my BlackBerry? Or, or was, there, was there something else that sort of was driving this? Yeah, so this was, again, in the early uh, 2001, 2002 timeframe um, where BlackBerry was getting started. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, phones, uh, commodity phones, uh, at that time, Nokia and Samsung, etc. Yeah. phones were becoming internet enabled. And so we said, hey, wouldn't it be great if you could access your email account on your phone, just like with BlackBerry. And so we um, then looked into all the popular email accounts uh, systems out there and found that they were all proprietary. And so we had to essentially reverse engineer all of these uh, email systems to enable access to uh, those systems. And we made it very, very simple. All you had to do was enter your email address and password and boom, you would be able to access your email. Mm. <clears throat> so that was very attractive to BlackBerry because they were all about email access and we gave them the ability to access a wide range of accounts. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> crazy. Crazy times. And that's, and so I take it you had a BlackBerry yourself, you would access your emails on this, you'd obviously do a lot of testing. Um, yeah. So was that your first soiree, if I can put it that way, into the world of tech? Or was there something pre-cracking email on BlackBerry? So um, before uh, starting my company, which was called Team On Systems in 2000, uh, for about uh, 12 years, I had worked at Microsoft. Okay. Uh, and um, I actually worked on email technology, including doing the right. acquisition of Hotmail yeah. uh, in 1997. And so I had developed uh, some expertise around email that I you know, wanted to leverage. And that's how I started my first company. Yeah, fantastic. So you were there right at the beginning of when Microsoft took over Hotmail. Yes, I actually engineered the, I was the person who, uh, convinced uh, Microsoft management to actually pay $400 million to buy Hotmail. <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> yeah. That's a great conversation starter. Well, what have you done in your life? Well, I convinced Microsoft to spend 400 million quid on an unknown email platform, uh, which they did, obviously. And um, I remember when Microsoft bought out Hotmail, because like most people back then, I had a Hotmail email address. Because they did this really simple marketing thing, didn't they? This Every yes. email that got sent out was just email sent via Hotmail. And so you just yeah. click the link, I've oh, got to get my, I need an email address, that'll do. And um, so they, they, what was it about Hotmail that made you think this is worth $400 million in the late 90s? This is, this is, I mean, it's a lot of money now, but it was insane amounts of money back then. No one had heard of deals like this, right? You're right. Uh, but remember, this was in um, 1997 at the height of the dot-com 
boom, right. where companies were going public at a billion dollar or more valuation. So what was interesting about Hotmail was that it was growing very rapidly and email is, um, is a very addictive um, application. Uh, you need to go check your email you know, several times a day. Yeah. And so um, I was working on Microsoft at that point, working on MSN.com and we were late to the game. And so we said, hey, we need something that brings people to our portal every day, multiple times a day. And we heard about Hotmail, saw that it was uh, delivering uh, web-based email okay. service and was growing very rapidly. So we decided to make the, uh, the offer. Actually, Hotmail uh, at that time was only doing two, $3 million of revenue, but we had to end up paying $400 million uh, for, for the um, system uh, because otherwise they would have gone uh, public at a billion dollar valuation. Right. Uh, so it was uh, at that time somewhat of a deal to go get Hotmail at that price. That's incredible. It's, I mean, it's, I, I have to be honest with you, Shirish. I I have a Hotmail ad- account, which I must not have accessed for like 15 years because, you know, email, all of a sudden you could start buying your own domain names, couldn't you? And then Google Mail came along and it changed. Is Microsoft still in ownership of Hotmail, do you know? Is it still going on? It is still going on. Um, and... Uh, I still have a Hotmail uh, account uh, that's, that works, um, uh, but uh, they have now rebranded as, I think, Outlook Mail. Right. And so it's the same system behind the scenes. Behind the curtain is the same system. It just rebranded as Outlook. Fantastic. So it's so, still out there. But, uh, you know, Gmail is now the dominant email system. Yeah, well. yeah. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, what if- was it a success? Was it worth the four hundred million for Microsoft? Do you, do you look back at it and go, "We did a great deal"? Then I think so because uh, you know that you know when we bought Hotmail, they had about ten million users, growing very fast, and then over its lifetime, I think they've gotten to a billion plus uh, email accounts. Wow! So um, I think it was a good buy for Microsoft. Yes, it seemed not, seemed very expensive at that time, but I think ended up being a good purchase for Microsoft. So I'm curious, um, and I appreciate, we'll get onto the conversation of e-commerce, but I'm cu- let's talk about email a little minute here because I'm kind of curious. Why did you and Microsoft at the time go, let's buy Hotmail versus let's start our own email platform, right? So uh, let's start Outlook email and then we'll be competitors to um, right. Hotmail. The reason I'm asking this is because this is a question the takeover question is one that plagues a lot of people. Do I buy an existing thing out there, even like an e-commerce business, for example? Do I buy an existing e-commerce business, or do I start from scratch? And so, if you don't, let's just dig into this a little bit because I'm super curious. What what was the thinking behind takeover versus um, starting your own? Yeah, that's that's actually a very uh, good question because uh, internally uh, we got pushback from our uh, from the division at Microsoft that was working on email technology. And they said, oh, we can also build something like Hotmail. But we knew based on past experience that, you know, it would probably take uh, another two years before they would be able to come out with a similar technology and understand how to scale it. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that Hotmail did was they had scaled it to millions and millions of accounts, which is not a small undertaking. 
Yeah. And we needed to really uh, give a, a big boost to MSN by integrating Hotmail. We thought we could get a lot of new users mm. through Hotmail becoming members of MSN.com. And so for that reason, it was, it was a tough decision, uh, but ultimately Bill Gates decided to go ahead with the acquisition and not wait for the email guys at Microsoft to build a similar technology. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it was the, uh, the time to market and the ability to scale. Yes. Um, yes. And they're, actually, they're, they're two really good principles, aren't they, in terms of do I buy this business? Well, what's the time to market to, for me? Um, and how easy is it to scale? And so these guys already had a few million users um, yeah. versus you would you would have to build the technology and you'd start from scratch. So you'd be a few years behind. And I think super important lessons there. Um, super, super yeah. important. And if, so you worked at Microsoft. You then start up your own company. You figure out internet email for BlackBerry. So I now understand because you've got this background in Hotmail, you, you sort of got your, your head around that. So it gave you sort of a leap forward. Um, the BlackBerry is no longer with us. So I'm assuming, or maybe it is actually, and I just don't know about it, uh, but I'm assuming you've done some things since then uh, <laughs> to, to just keep yourself busy more than anything I would have thought. Yeah, well, um, after that, I started LiveMocha that you mentioned in the introduction. and uh, But now I'm focused on helping entrepreneurs. Uh, so I uh, write books, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, to uh, share some of my experiences, uh, and then I uh, invest in and advise uh, startups. I really enjoy doing that and working with smart entrepreneurs. And was that a was that a natural progression for you, or did you, as in you sort of you you started writing books? I dare say the thing that happens is you sort of start writing books. People start to reach out to you, and you start to ask. They start asking questions. You then start to get involved, don't you? And you kind of figure out what that means you know how do i get involved in startups well they've not really got any money to pay me for my time yeah. uh, but i can invest in them uh, for a return mm -hmm. of their business and i think it's a really interesting model um, yeah. how long have you been doing that uh so about for about seven years last okay. seven years yeah. are you enjoy are you enjoying it oh absolutely um you know i uh, uh, really enjoy meeting with smart uh, entrepreneurs and helping them with their strategy and go-to-market approach and mm. um, you know business models um, those are things that we discuss and and it's exciting to see when somebody really succeeds fantastic so the yeah. title for today's show uh Shirish, is unlocking marketplace success marketplace marketplace success uh and overcoming modern monopolies so unlocking marketplace success what do you mean by that what are some of the things that we should be thinking about at the moment uh, based on what you see through your investments through your knowledge of the tech industry uh what what are some of the things we should be seriously thinking about right now absolutely um so one of the things that is interesting about marketplaces is that you have the chicken or the egg problem when you get started because uh, you know no supplier is going to join your marketplace because there are no consumers and no consumers are going to come to your marketplace because there are no suppliers mm -hmm. so how do you get uh, around that problem and mm. that's what i one of the things i discussed in my book is you focus on the supply side of the equation and you focus on a narrow market or category so i'll give you some examples mm -hmm. um, 
Instacart, uh, which is a grocery delivery service in the US. I don't know if they're in the UK as well. Uh, but, no, but I know uh, who you mean. I, I do know who you mean, yeah. Yeah, um, but you know, they started in uh, the Bay Area and um, initially what the founder did was uh, he uh, went to the Safeway site. Safeway is a major grocery chain here in the US yeah. and he scraped all their content and made it available on his website mm-hmm. uh, without their permission. Um, you know, not something that's entirely legal to do, but you know, you have to be yeah. strappy as an entrepreneur. And then uh, allowed uh, his customers to place orders through his website, choose items from the scraped content, and then he would go deliver the groceries himself. Right. Uh, so that's one example. Another example is DoorDash, which is a food delivery service. Yeah. And they started in Palo Alto in California. And what they did was they actually uh, scraped the menus off of restaurants in Palo Alto. And, and they would actually take the order from the consumers and turn around and call the restaurant over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and place the order and go pick it up and deliver it to their customers. And that's Fantastic. how they got started. Yeah. Uh, so you have to be scrappy to figure out how to get started when you have no suppliers yeah. on your website. And then once you have some traffic, then you can go to the suppliers and say, look, we've been ordering stuff from your web, from your website for all these days. Why don't you become a partner and become, mm. you know, integrate over the internet? That's really interesting. It's, um, I love those kind of stories where somebody somewhere just goes, I just, I'm, there's a proof of concept here. So yeah. DoorDash just goes, I'm just going to put a load of menus on the website. People are going to order stuff. I'm going to take their order. I'm then going to call that restaurant, order that food, pick it up and deliver it. And I'm not going to yeah. make any money uh, because there's yeah. no way you can make money on a, whatever it was, a four or five book delivery. Maybe they could at the start. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it's it gives that really interesting proof of concept, doesn't it? Because you don't need all your ducks in a row you just yes. is there a market for this is there an easy way to test this concept to test this idea yes or no um I, I love your phrase you've got to be a little bit scrappy um yeah and i think it's just thinking around that like can we prove this concept yes or no uh and quite quickly i think you'll discover whether it's a yes or whether it's a no right, uh, right. so with doordash and instacart they they, they quite quickly discovered what was going on and, and obviously grew from there to the point where they then have people knocking down on their door going, can you please add my stuff to your website? Um, right, right. Really interesting. And do you, see, do you see that happening a lot or do you think st- even still today people are like, no, I've got to have this, in a, I've got to do this, this isn't it. I've got to have all of these things in a row before I stop. No, every situation I've encountered, um, uh, whether it's DoorDash or Instacart or Airbnb, you know, the founders have been supremely scrappy uh, to figure out how to get supply side of the equation on their marketplace. And then they yeah. uh, go after, you know, consumers. So, um, you know, uh, Airbnb is a good example. Um, you know, before, uh, before Airbnb, people would use Craigslist to advertise yeah. that had a house for rent, etc. And so uh, what the Airbnb founders did was they would go to all the Craigslist listers 
the people doing the listings and say, hey, you know, why don't you come on uh, Airbnb and, and you can now put pictures of your home mm-hmm. on our website instead of just a list, simple listing. And so they basically uh, hacked into um, Craigslist to create supply on their website. Mm. It's really clever, really yeah. clever. What, um, I mean, there's lots of different stories there, lots of different marketplace ideas, you know, so you've got food delivery, you've got shopping delivery, you've obviously got the home rentals. What are maybe, uh, just a slightly different turn here, uh, Shirisha, what, what do you see emerging in this kind of marketplace market, for want of a better expression, that is really quite innovative and that you sort of, you've got your eye on and think that's going to take off, like what's the next Airbnb or uh, that you see at the moment? Um, so, right, I mean, there's, there's been an evolution of marketplaces uh, over time, you know, from simple listing type of marketplace like eBay or Craigslist to now marketplaces like Open Door, um, mm. which will, you know, basically buy, let's say you have a home for sale, uh, they will actually uh, buy the home from you renovate it and then sell it themselves at a profit. And it's all a very well oiled machine yeah. uh, where no human being is really involved. It's all managed for you. So managed marketplaces are a big phenomena mm. uh, that's happening where a lot of the transaction is handled for you as opposed to you doing all that work. Yeah, you see um, in the UK, you see a lot of, uh, dare say you have them in the States as well, a lot of the webuyanycar.com type thing where, you know, you've got something for sale, we'll buy it for you from you cheaper, but we've we've obviously got a process to, to sell that somewhere down the line and make a profit. But at yeah. no point in that whole process do you talk to a human being until the very last minute mm. where a human has to inspect your car just to make sure it yeah. is what you said it is, you know. Right, 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 yeah. So the more you can automate the whole transaction, the more transactions that can happen on your marketplace. So you have to grease that whole process. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And these are called managed marketplaces. Yes, managed. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Open Door, what other examples have you got um, of sort of up and coming spaces like the uh, marketplaces like this where you think, yeah, I, I'm really, this idea in itself is interesting, like the ability to sell your house instantly. You know, what what else do you see happening in that space? Uh, I, I think there's a lot of potential for B2B marketplace, something I talk about in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another example is a company called uh, Convoy, which is also located in Seattle. And they basically connect, uh, um, you know, f- uh, trucking companies uh, mm. with the, uh, companies who want to ship freight and they uh, again uh, make that process very simple Um, you know they will figure out how far you are from the freight supplier and then price based on your distance because they know how much distance you have to travel and pick Mm -hmm. up and deliver etc all that stuff is calculated for you um, and and done automatically Uh, in the old days um, before Convoy came uh, on stream, uh, you used to actually have brokers who would be on the phone calling different, you know, freight suppliers and trucking companies and saying, hey, you know, I have this freight to be delivered from 
Seattle to Portland and uh, the freight supplier is going to pay you $800 to do that. Do you want to take it? And it's mm-hmm. a very, it was a very cumbersome process that is now all automated uh, for you. And you know, because of GPS tracking, et cetera, where the truck is, when it'll be delivered, all of that yeah. is all automated for you. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Uh, absolutely fascinating. The whole managed marketplace thing. Um, yeah. How does that... Uh, you, see, you, you mentioned in the book you talked about opportunities in B2B. One of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand here is... We have a lot of people listening to the show who are in e-commerce, right? So I'm going to say traditional e-commerce. So they have a website, they sell a product or a digital service online uh, to their customers. It's their website. They may be listing their website in other marketplaces, such as the obvious one being Amazon, right? So uh, we sell on our website, we sell on Amazon. What, with what you know, talk to me like, what are the things that I'm missing? What are some of the things that I should be thinking about um, that's going to help me uh, based on what you know about uh, marketplaces, managed marketplaces, uh, the other stuff you've written in your book, Sirish? What, what should I be thinking about right now? Well, so the, the challenge that you face um, with Amazon is that uh, while you get a lot of customers through Amazon, uh, Amazon apparently takes you know, a dollar for every $2 of sale. Mm. So they're taking literally 50% of the transaction in a variety of different um, um, situations. And um, obviously, when you're giving up 50% of your revenue, it's very hard to make a profit. And so uh, what e-commerce sites have to consider is... uh, uh, one is are there other marketplaces that they can join, like Walmart in the U.S. and potentially others, or Etsy also, which is mm-hmm. a worldwide marketplace. So uh, expand your reach where perhaps you can make more of a profit from each transaction. And then secondly, uh, you know, see if you can go direct to consumer on your own website. But that will also require significant investment in, in marketing. Um, uh, but maybe it'll be profitable. Uh, there is a rule of thumb that we have in the venture world, which is your lifetime value of your customer has to be at least three times the cost of customer acquisition. Yeah. So, uh, assuming you spend a dollar on marketing to acquire a customer, make sure you're making at least $3 in profit from that customer over, over the yeah. lifetime. If that yeah. is the case, then you have a direct-to-consumer opportunity as well. Yeah. No, it's interesting that ratio, um, the three to one ratio, you know, your lifetime value to your, they call it CAC, don't they? The cost, uh, yeah, customer yeah. acquisition LTV cost. To CAC. Yeah, yes. LTV to CAC. And so the ratio three to one has been um, has been banded around, I think, for a little while. What's interesting, um, and maybe you can talk to this, is I'm starting to hear rumors that actually that ratio has now got to increase for investors mm-hmm. to be interested just because the cost of money is going up with higher interest rates. So obviously right. for investors, there's the opportunity cost is now greater because they can get interest on their money. Um, yes, and yes. borrowing money is now more expensive. Uh, so I, I've heard a number of people talking about a four to one, even a five to one um, mm-hmm. uh, lifetime value to uh, uh, customer acquisition costs or LTV to CAC. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that is true because uh, 
um, as you met, rightly mentioned, you know, um, when you're calculating the LTV, um, you're discounting future cash flow to the present. And the higher mm. the interest rate, the more the cash flow in the future gets discounted. And so, um, you know, when you have uh, um, higher interest rates, uh, that ratio can be more like four to four or five to one. Yeah. Uh, so you're absolutely right. Um, that's always a good you know place to be because uh, then you clearly have profitability that you can you know, then raise money on. Yeah, yeah, and it's a it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you it it helps you define marketing budget. Um, yeah, we had Matt Puna on the show uh, last week. Well, I, he was the last person I interviewed. Whether he's the last last week in terms of show order, I don't actually know the way these these things come out. Um, but he was talking about this and creating. Um, a really clear marketing budget on the basis of what you call blended ROAS. Um, but again, understanding that ratio, you, you know, understanding lifetime value to customer acquisition costs is really quite an interesting thing to sort of think about, um, especially yeah. if you've got the cash. I mean, a lot of people starting out don't have the cash flow to bankroll, um, you yeah. know, these sort of things. And so you, they, they tend to be much higher. Um so, so we're talking then about marketplaces, managed marketplaces. We're talking about startups and hustle um, and maybe not just relying on Amazon now, obviously looking at different marketplaces, having your own direct-to-consumer site, um, understanding that. What do you mean when you talk about overcoming modern monopolies then? Yeah, um, so one of the... Um hypothesis of the book uh, is that uh, once you get a marketplace going, then it, there's a virtuous uh, cycle that follows where as you add more suppliers, uh, more consumers come to the site because there's a wider array of suppliers and then more suppliers come because there are more consumers. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then basically the end state is when you become a monopoly. Yeah. And so you've seen that multiple times with Amazon, with eBay, with Alibaba and Instacart and DoorDash. Mm -hmm. They all become monopolies um, or it's, it's either winner take all or winner take most kind of situation. Yeah. Um, the problem with becoming a monopoly is that it becomes very easy to abuse that monopoly power to the detriment of your consumers and suppliers. Right. And I give several examples of that in my book about Amazon and Apple and Google. Uh, Amazon, for example, uh, has a private label business called Amazon Basics. You may be familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seen uh, that, yeah. Um, and so what has happened is uh, people internally within Amazon have uh, been able to access you know, proprietary data from different suppliers to figure out which markets are the most profitable to enter mm -hmm. into. And then they basically, uh, uh, you know, reverse engineer that, that item and go directly to the manufacturers and say, why don't you manufacture that product for us as well? Yeah. And then uh, when you go to the website, they will self-preference themselves higher than other mm -hmm. manufacturers. And so uh, that has created a lot of problem for many suppliers who now suddenly find themselves in competition with Amazon. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's not something that the, you know, management of Amazon has explicitly said, you know, Jeff Bezos had not gone out there and said to people in this company, go do this. 
It's just that people have abused the monopoly power mm. to their own, you know, uh, benefit. Yeah. Uh, so as management team, Amazon has to make sure that, you know, they, you don't give access to proprietary data to, uh, to the average individual within Amazon. Yeah, it's really fascinating, isn't it? And you, this is always the danger, isn't it, when you sell on a marketplace like Amazon. Uh, the customer's not yours, it's the customer's theirs. The data yeah. is theirs. Um, you're just there for the sale and hoping that by selling on Amazon, it actually raises awareness of your brand and people mig migrate from Amazon to your website. And there's a strategies behind how you do that, isn't there? And, and sort of thinking yeah. to do that. Um, but you're right, there is a danger here um, that as a, as an e-commerce brand, if you're selling on marketplaces, you are ex you are in effect giving free access to your sales data um, yeah. to mm -hmm. these marketplaces, uh, as well as obviously a commission and a and a cut and so on and so forth. So you do see the rise of Amazon Basics, you know, and and um, and also one day Amazon might just go, yeah, I don't want you to sell on my website anymore. And, and there's not yeah. a whole great deal you can do about it. To be fair. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, if that's your business, you you know, there's plenty of stories of people being screwed over like that. Um, so, I mean, you've talked about this as in if you become a, a monopoly, don't abuse your power. Right. So yeah. a bit like um, I'm, I'm going back to the 1990s now uh, when you were at Microsoft, they were in the press all the time, you know, being investigated because of their monopoly power. You don't tend yeah. to see that as much these days, actually. Every now and again, the EU takes a bit of a swipe at Apple. You know, you've got to use yeah. USB-C chargers or it's no go. Um, but you don't tend to see those sort of big court cases now over monopolies that you used to see. Um, but obviously they, they, they exist in, in Apple in quite, quite some major ways. So I'm always curious as to why it's not happened to Apple yet. But all that aside, um, what do I need to think about as an e-commerce company that is maybe going to other people's marketplaces? I mean, you've, you've talked a little bit about having a direct consumer site and um, being aware that you're, you know, you're giving them your sales data. Is there anything else I should think about? Yeah, I mean, um, the other thing that uh, you might want to be careful about is, is uh, making sure that nobody nobody knows who your manufacturer is. Let's say you're manufacturing the item in China, mm. is to keep that as secret, you know, as, right. as possible so that nobody you know whether amazon or anybody else doesn't go back to that manufacturer and re-engineer the same item yeah and have strong agreements in place over that um yeah, yeah suppliers can really mess up your business if you're not careful that was my, certainly my experience you know um so uh, let's uh, let's start from the beginning right um i get the the benefits of doing the marketplace right i i from a just from an entrepreneurial point of view i see the benefit if i can create a marketplace i don't need any product i yes. just need people mm -hmm. to list i need a mechanism yeah. to connect a buyer and a seller together and take a small percentage in the middle right yes um yes. and it, it doesn't have to necessarily be a big percentage but it can if there's a big market it can be super profitable right uh, and the bigger i get the the more profitable it's going to be the more people are going to depend on me how do i get started right because i'm sitting here thinking this is genius i should have mattsmarketplace.com or whatever you know i'm going to set up um how do i pick a good 
industry or market to think about marketplaces in? Because the ones that I'm thinking of, um, Sirish, I, I think are very oversaturated. But mm. I don't know if that should stop me. You know, there's already Amazon in the e-commerce world. Um, at mm. some point, I dare say someone's going to knock Amazon off their perch because no one ever stays on top forever. Um, right. But I don't, I don't know if that's going to be me in my shed. I don't, I don't know. I'm just kind of curious. Where, where would you start with it all? Um, well, um, I would, uh, um, one is looking at um, markets in which emerging markets where uh, Amazon is not yet, you know, a dominant uh, player. So, for example, uh, in India, before Amazon uh, became a major player, you had uh, companies like Flipkart, mm. uh, which was founded by uh, two engineers who had worked at Amazon, went back to India and started something, started a marketplace like Amazon. Um, right. So if you happen to be from a different country, uh, then perhaps you could create a marketplace in a different location where Amazon or Walmart mm. or somebody else is not dominant. Uh, the other option I could take is to, you know, go deep into one category. So, mm. um, you know, uh, today Amazon, for example, is not... Um, a marketplace really for fashion goods. Mm. Uh, uh, so maybe in a different country, in a different location, I might be able to create a marketplace just for fashion brands and 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 do some of the things that Amazon doesn't do, such as providing data and giving them branding opportunities, etc. Yeah. So, yeah. So basically, I have to do things that um, I have to look for, you know, niche locations or categories where I can really dominate. So niche it down or go to a different country. <laughs> I like that. I like the thinking there. And it's, it, you are right. It's, so if I'm going to say start a, a marketplace and you, you mentioned fashion brands, um, what makes a good marketplace? Do I have to, do I sit there and think what, this is how my brain works, right? What is it that the customer's not currently getting when they buy on other websites that I can give them in this marketplace other than choice, right? Because right. I have to do something, well, do I have to do something that is more than just choice? Do I have to be innovative in some kind of way? What What do I need to think about there? Um, yeah, right. I mean, initially, um, um, it's... Um all about uh, you know creating is all about choice uh, convenience and price as you know right mm -hmm. those are the three uh, major items uh, yeah so you know maybe um, uh, maybe uh, it's price uh, maybe you price goods at a at a level that you can't get directly from the um, uh, supplier uh, it, and that happened in India uh, so uh, for for example Flipkart uh, for a long time, because they had enormous VC funding, they basically subsidized the sale of smartphones on their marketplace. So it became really inexpensive to buy those uh, smartphones, and they lost money on every sale. Mm. But that is what made those marketplaces really popular. Now, having said that, uh, I would say that you have to have you know, significant VC funding to be able to afford. Sure to do that. Uh, but initially, it has to come down to, you know, price or convenience. Uh, so on convenience, maybe you implement, you know, free shipping for certain P2 
period of time or whatever. But again, mm. for that, you need money to try some of those uh, tactics. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about one of our websites we used to own. I sold it a few years ago called Jersey, Jersey Beauty Company. And in effect, we sold different beauty brands. That's what we did. We, we, you know, we bought in from different suppliers. We had to get supplier agreements. We then sold that product on our website, direct to consumer. Um, and I don't, I don't, I, that's not technically a marketplace. I wouldn't have thought that was just me buying products and trying to sell them at a profit. Um, but what intrigues me about the beauty industry is this idea of doing a beauty marketplace where, where you could, bring in just about everybody's you, you could scrape the data and bring it in and as long as you've got some way of buying it now a lot of beauty brands now have terms and conditions of supply right so um at the time there was a brand we sold called dermalogica and dermalogica you had to have a salon a beauty salon to so they 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 had quite stringent terms of supply you had to have a salon a trained therapist to get their you know in their products to buy their product to then sell it on your website um your website had to conform to certain standards um and then in 2012 they changed their pricing policy was it 2012 i think it's 2012 basically they changed their pricing policy to one which was the more you buy the more you pay uh, which sounds a bit odd, but that's what they did um, for reasons known to them. Um, and so then, you know, our prices went up because we were quite a big supplier of their of their product. How do you get around this with marketplaces in terms of there are suppliers out there who are very, very anti-use selling their stuff online or being some kind of we were not allowed part of the terms and conditions supply with most of the beauty brands we couldn't sell on amazon and we couldn't sell on ebay we had to sell it mm -hmm. direct on our website we couldn't sell outside the european union um and you know dermalogica have since built their own direct to consumer business which you i, I as an as a business person i understand why would i not want to go direct to consumer and make the most profit um yeah. but for somebody in the middle, it's quite tricky dealing with a supplier like that. Right. So how do you how do you mitigate that if you're if you're doing your own marketplace? You know, if you find these if you find suppliers that just aren't interested in working with you, but you've hustled a little bit. Um, what are some What are some of your experiences there? I mean, um, this has happened on Amazon. As um, the only way to get around that is somehow get that product from the black market mm. in a sense, uh, find some, somebody, some salon out there who is willing to sell you that product. And then you turn around and sell it on your marketplace. Uh, yeah. But if the supplier is not willing to sell you the product, there's not much you can really do about it, except to buy it from other sources at a inexpensive uh, price. Mm. Did you try that, uh, you know, getting it from the product from other salons? At the time, no, but part of me, I mean, and I, I appreciate the problems that that buying on the black market does, but it's it's one of those where you kind of go, if I was going to do it now, if I was going to set up a beauty website now, not that I would, but if I, if I was going to, um, I think you would have to find a way around it. So part of me would be actually probably the better thing I can do is go around to all the Dermalogica salons. Um, that have Dermalogica accounts and create a Dermalogica 
marketplace where they all put their details in uh, because they're a small salon. They've not got time to do their own website or anything like that. You know, we market that. We sell uh, the products to the end consumer. Um, yeah. But it's the, the salon that fulfills the orders from their stock. Do you see what I mean? We connect right. the buyer and the right. seller. So we thought about right. that. You know, could we do something around that, for example? Dermalogica might be a bad example because I don't think it's a particularly popular brand anymore. It, I think they, yeah. they shot themselves in the foot slightly. Just my personal opinion. Uh, please, Dermalogica mm-hmm. lawyers, don't shoot me. It's just an opinion. Um, but it's, it's one of those where I think I, th- I, I think I could do something a bit more creative uh, if that makes sense right. with the salon owners, maybe. Yeah, I mean, as I said, you have to figure out a way to get that supply. Yeah. And either you buy it from the salons or create a marketplace yeah. for the salons to sell through your site. Yeah. No, very clever. Very clever. Loving that. Um, listen, I'm aware of time. As always, I'm just getting warmed up. Uh, and as always, I'm coming to the end of the time. It flashes on my screen going, you've got a few minutes left. Uh, listen, Shirish, it's been great chatting to you, man. And I um, love the story about Microsoft, by the way, and uh, Hotmail. I'll remember that. Uh, I will remember that, I have no doubt. Uh, if people want to reach out to you, if they want to find out more, maybe about the book, uh, where to get the book, how to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so you can uh, search for my two books on Amazon. Um, you know, uh, so you search by my name, Shirish Natkarni, uh, or you can come to my website, www.shirishnatkarni.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I welcome people to connect with me. Um, if you're an entrepreneur, you have any questions, happy to chat with you anytime. Fantastic. Fantastic. We will, of course, link to all of that information on the website and in the show notes as well. So if you're listening to this podcast on your uh, non-Blackberry device, I dare say, <laughs> you can uh, you can click the link uh, and that will take you straight through. Uh, listen, super appreciate you coming on to the show, man. Genuinely love the conversation and really, really appreciate you being here. Lots to think about. And you've resurrected some ideas in my head. So a big thank you for that. Thank you, Matt. I really enjoyed the conversation. Fantastic. Well, there you go. What another fantastic conversation. Huge thanks again to Shirish for joining me today. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from because we've got some more great conversations lined up and I don't want you to miss any of them. And in case no one has told you yet today, let me be the first person to tell you, you are awesome. Yes, you are. Created awesome. It's just a burden you have to bear. Shirish has to bear it. I've got to bear it. You've got to bear it as well. It's just the way it is. Now, this show is produced by the talented and amazing Sadaf Bainon and Tanya Hutzelak. The theme song was written by Josh Edmondson. And as I said, if you would like to read the transcript, the show notes, all those sorts of good things, head over to the website ecommercepodcast.net, where they all await for you. Uh, and you can consume them to your heart's content. Uh, so all that's left for me to say is uh, thank you so much for joining us. That's it from me. That's it from Shirish. Have a fantastic week wherever you are in the world. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>